Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Kroll-Bennett. Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. We are thrilled to welcome today, Dr. Hina Talib, Director of the Adolescent Medicine Fellowship Program and an attending physician in the Division of Adolescent Medicine at Children's Hospital at Montefiore. Dr. Talib is also an Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Obstetrics, Gynecology and Women's Health at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Her clinical focus is adolescent health, gynecology, contraception, mental health, care of children in foster care, and care of hospitalized adolescents. Hina is also the host of the popular and informative Instagram account at Teen Health Doc which provides relatable and useful nuggets of advice for all those caring for teens. Hina, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Before we dive into the nitty gritty of menstruation, we'd love to have you tell our listeners a little bit about how you found this very important and interesting lane on Instagram as Teen Health Doc, where you offer up amazing bite-sized gifts on social media for people caring for teens. So if you don't mind, can you spend a couple minutes just telling us how you, in the world of COVID and all of this, how you found this this lane for yourself? Thank you so much for having me, guys. I am delighted to be here. Yeah, the lane. I think that, 
You know, it's funny. I, I sort of joined Instagram on a whim. I thought, wouldn't it be fun to be creative and to share about something I'm passionate about, which is teen health. And I realized very quickly that what I thought was sort of almost boring and was hoping somebody would be interested in affected a lot of people. People were very curious about how to best support their tweens, teens, and young adults. And I am certain that the impact of the pandemic was huge on this sort of interest because all of a sudden their big kids were back home with them and they were sort of face to face with parts of adolescence that sometimes happened outside of the home. Specifically puberty, which brings us all together today, was happening before their eyes in a way that it just didn't before. And so I found myself in this funny place of being able to offer evidence-based or expert opinion, advice, education, answer questions about these kind of tricky topics that um, take up my day job and that I'm so, I'm so, so passionate about. And I, it ended up being helpful for people. So I was happy to do that. And really scalable, right? I mean, in the office, we're one-to-one with our patients, which is so wonderful and intimate in many ways. But the platform of Instagram is so different. I would imagine you feel like your voice is being multiplied into many different homes and schools and environments you never imagined you would be in. When you go into medicine, you know, you have really good intentions. You want to help people. You want to reach people. And then you discover your voice and it kind of like it grows and changes as you go through medicine, as you grow up in medicine. And I found my voice and I realized I do want to have an impact. And this tool, it's a tool, but it it really, it's like a megaphone for the voice that I already had inside me that I was passionate and I shared with friends and family. And all of a sudden I felt like I was able to reach a lot more people. And I didn't even realize kind of the scalability of it, as you say, uh, until I kind of dug into it. And, you know, in medicine, like you do research or you write papers and I realized, well, if you don't share it with the world or share it with the people that it could help, it's kind of a dud. And we need to talk about the work that we do more. And I, I love to talk about the work I do, but I love to talk about the work that other people do too in the field of helping teenagers. I mean, one of the, most wonderful parts of the pandemic, and (laughs) there aren't that many, so I like to point them out, has been learning to collaborate with people who I've never met before. So like meeting you, Hina, over Instagram and our friend Kelly Fraden, who has the advice I give my friends account on Instagram and just getting to know people across the country who are doing incredible work, who I might not have actually connected with if not for the many hours we've all spent scrolling on social media. <laughs> yeah, not not to mention that those of us who come from formal medical training, we need to do a better job of being like you, Hina, and getting good information out and getting it out in a manner that is relatable and understandable. I mean, one of the things we've learned in the last year and a half through the pandemic is how powerful a short soundbite of information about health or wellness can be. You do a phenomenal... I mean, it's so funny. Here we are on the Puberty Podcast and we are going to be your PR agents for a second. But anyone who has not gone onto your Instagram and looked at the messaging that you are creating 
It is a model for doctors to communicate with a wider audience and to build credibility. You take really good science-based information and you translate it into digestible, understandable bits and pieces. And that's what, frankly, every doctor in America needs to do right now, every doctor in the world. So hurrah to you for being a role model and, uh, and for creating a new path. And I think with that, we should get to some of the information that you communicate so effectively. So what I would love to do is to start with a little basic overview. Now, you know that Vanessa and I have done an entire podcast on menstruation, on periods. Of course, there are people who spend their entire lives, work lives, working on this subject. So one one-hour podcast on the topic is not exactly the be-all and end-all, but we do have a pretty thorough intro episode. That said, can we start with you with a little recap? We would love to know um, how you would describe or sort of just encapsulate some basic information about menstruation. So I'd love to know your sense of how would you define a normal period in all of its iterations. What a great starting off point, a normal period. You know, that's that's so important because we need to normalize periods. It does still have that taboo associated with it. And there are so many reasons for that. Um, you know, women's health or uh, menstrual health has, has always had a little bit of a stigma attached to it. And there are so many uh, different approaches and cultural practices and beliefs and myths surrounding menstruation. And so, you know, it's an area that I think that's the very first point is let's just normalize periods for teens. And if we start from that place, I think we it really opens up some, some areas for us to correct misconceptions and empower teens to face their changing bodies with a little bit of knowledge, hopefully some comfort and care, and hopefully in a way that they feel a little empowered about their bodies as well. So a normal period, it is something that happens to a body when you have period parts, including a uterus and ovary. And it's so important to understand what it is. It's the shedding of the lining of the uterus. It's the uterus makes this lining, hoping to welcome an embryo into a soft and cuddly blanket. And when that doesn't happen, it lets go and it just sheds right out. And this happens every month if you ovulate then you have some signs of ovulation that can include some people are very sensitive and they know exactly when they're ovulating. Um, so teaching teens to know their body through this time, again, so important because some are really perceptive and they feel kind of slight, the slightest of changes related to ovulation and of course related to, a, related to a period. So a normal period is something that happens in a, in a developing teen as a normal part of puberty. And it's very patterned. We expect it to happen at a certain time. We expect it to last a certain range and to be associated with certain signs. And these are all things that we can dig into more. Hey, it's Cara. We all know puberty isn't always easy. One of the trickiest pieces of the puberty puzzle is boobs. When will I get them? Why are they so tender? And why does every bra out there seem to pull, push, pad, itch, scratch, or be so flimsy 
It doesn't do a thing. That's where Umla comes in. It's a company that makes puberty comfortable, a company I founded with my friend Julie. When our own daughters began the puberty journey, we couldn't find a decent starter bra anywhere. So we made one. It fits perfectly whether boobs are just starting to bud or they've been growing for a few years. We call it the Umbra. And it's game-changing. The Umbra is made from buttery cotton that feels like second skin, ridiculously soft, and so comfortable you'll forget you're wearing anything at all. Umbra's one-of-a-kind support comes from its patented layered design that creates gentle compression without any tight binding which also means it doesn't need any bulky, awkward pads because it's built to seamlessly hide nipples and protect against those dreaded ouch moments throughout the day. Our daughters and their friends are done with puberty, but they still love and wear their umbras. It's why we say that the umbra may be your first bra, but it will definitely be your favorite bra. Come say hi, look around, and find your umbra plus lots of other puberty info at myoomla.com. That's M-Y-O-O-M-L-A.com. Okay, really quickly, my favorite word, my favorite period word, middle schmertz. Can you tell people about middle schmertz? Vanessa's like middle schwartz. I just got, I just got very excited about a new vocabulary word. First of all, can one of you spell it as an M I D D L E? No, No, neither of us can spell it. No. No. Should I Google it while Hina's telling us I'm going to Google the spelling? Okay. Yeah. You know, so as you go through a cycle and if, when you ovulate, you can actually feel ovulation pain and it has this amazing name called middle schmertz. And, you know, I don't know how to spell it, but you know, we always keep it in the back of our minds as a, one of the reasons why a teen might be feeling pain in the middle of a month, because there's so many reasons why you feel pain down there. And sometimes it's poop. Sometimes it's middle schmerz. Sometimes it's related to your ovaries. There can be many different reasons why you have pain down there, but it's always in the back of our minds. And, and we can help teens actually pay attention to their body and learn these patterns so that they know what it is and that it's normal and fleeting. Um, middle schmerz just, you know, it can be quite sharp. It can take your breath away, but it, it usually, you know, goes away when that ovulation is over. So within the day or so. So for those of you wondering, and for those of you who speak German, you would have figured this out already. It's M-I-T-T-E-L-S-C-H-M-E-R-Z. So middle meaning the middle, right? In the middle of the cycle. Schmerz. I mean, there must be a Yiddish word. Schmerz, you know. (laughs) I think it must be like, I don't know. But Hina, one of the things I got a call from a friend recently, who's like my daughter is freaking out. She thinks she's appendicitis. And I, I mean, obviously just so everyone who's listening to this podcast is clear. I am not a physician. I'm not trained as a physician. I was not giving this advice as a physician. However, as someone who spends her life working in puberty, I said, well, when is she ovulating? Cause she thought she had appendicitis. She said, Oh, I think she might be ovulating. I said, well, does she know that you have, you alternate ovulating sides, each ovary alternates. And she said, no, I didn't know that. And then she went back and it turned out she was ovulating and the pain she was having was her. So things like that, those kind of... If you had only known the word middle schmerz. If I had only, I I could have said, 
Hey, it's her middle smarts. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna work that into conversation like 10 times today, and everyone's gonna give me a blank look. So, Hina, that's like one sort of lesser known fact about a menstrual cycle. It's something that as adult women, we come to learn about our bodies, right? Like a change in vaginal discharge might mean we're ovulating or pain on one side or the other. And obviously our menstruation changes if we get pregnant if we give birth, all of those things. One thing that I wanted to point out, which I really appreciated in your larger explanation is that you talked about having period parts and having a uterus and that you didn't specifically gender your description of who menstruates as in girls menstruate. And I just want you to spend... as On the podcast, we work really hard to be inclusive of our language. Sometimes we succeed and sometimes we're less successful in being as inclusive as possible. But can you just spend a minute talking about a kind of like a quickie adolescent medicine guide to how we talk to and about kids of all genders, if you don't mind? So words matter. And the American Academy of Pediatrics actually has a whole document called Words Matter that you can Google and it helps create a list of these words that are helpful and of some of the pitfalls. And I gotta say, I don't nail it all the time either. It is hard. And what's so important is to just recognize it. And just like you do, call it out that we are trying. We try our best, but recognizing it, even if it's after the fact, actually more so if it's after the fact, calling it out and re kind of framing our language together, what with each other in a, you know, in a non-judgmental and educational way is so very important. So a hundred percent, I feel that too. I try my best, you know, teens, people. These are words that we have to be a little bit more intentional about using. When we talk about puberty and menstruation, it's like, you know, we are just sort of trained or tracked. Our minds just go to girls, girls, girls. And that is not the most inclusive language or words or framing for when you want to include teens uh, who may identify in different ways and have different body parts or, or vice versa. And they they too have periods and they actually may be even more uncomfortable with their changing bodies and with this onset of menstruation. And so it is actually extra important when you are talking and teaching about periods to use that inclusive language because you don't know who might be listening with bigger ears and taking it in and trying to integrate what's happening with their body with how they feel inside. And it's such a very hard time. Even if you have a teen who is not, you know, sort of questioning their gender or how they see and feel about their bodies in that sense, all teens developmentally, tweens especially, you know, the ones who are actually facing puberty at the beginning, they are developmentally very focused on their body and self-critical about their body because it's, it's something is happening that is sort of out of their control in front of their eyes at different rates amongst their friends. And so what's happening to them isn't happening to their closest friend or their friend across the hall. And so it's a very triggering time for a young person because they are naturally self-critical, self-aware, comparing to other people. So being inclusive is so very important. That's so helpful. Thank you. So for people who are want a little glossary for talking to their teens in their house or their tweens, words like gender neutral words like 
tweens or teens or people. For people who are menstruating, you can say people who menstruate or people who get their periods or people with period parts. You know, phrases like that, depending on how old your kid is and what their sensibilities are. Um, Cara, I don't know if you have any other favorites that you want to add to the glossary here. Well, I love the phrase period parts and it's it's amazing. And I think one of the things that you shine a light on is that with the tween population who are just heading into puberty and on the front end, many of them sort of make assumptions that they have certain period parts. And then, you know, Hina, as you know, because you work with people across the age spectrum, there are some people who go from kind of assuming that they're plumbed one way to ending up in your office because they're not plumbed the way they think, or the internal organs don't work the way that they read in a book or on Dr. Google that they should work. And and that's its own whole other chapter to all of this. So I like the concept of period parts because what it does is it reminds us all to have the conversation that in bodies that are going to have periods, these organs are tucked away inside and we don't see them. We don't see how they work. We don't see the messaging that's going on. And so there is a little bit of mystery to it. And understanding that it's mystery and understanding that that mystery is going to unfold and make itself evident is sort of, I think, a healthier, better way of approaching it than not talking about it, which translates into some anxiety about it. And so for the younger kids... I would say having conversation and using this language is really helpful because it helps relieve a little of what otherwise becomes some silent nervousness or anxiety or uncertainty because we can't see. We don't have x-ray vision into our abdomens and pelvises as badly as I wish we did, you know. That would make for a really interesting society if we could just like, really look into superpower, <laughs> you know, like remember the wonder twins, I want x-ray vision into my pelvis. Um, so Dana's like, oh, that'd be amazing to have I that know that would office. make your job a lot easier. Yeah, you know, I'm I sure. got an app for that. Um, okay. So there's uh, our next venture right there. Yeah. Bingo. Okay. <laughs> Forget the beauty podcast. I'm going to make an x-ray vision app. Okay. So um, some quick rapid fire questions to finish off the conversation about a normal period. And I say normal with big air quotes around it. Can you talk about a normal cycle length, a normal interval, normal blood volume, and normal number of spotting days? Four things that I'll remind you. Ready? Cycle length, go. All right. So a normal period in a teenager is different than a normal period in an older person. So what, if you think you know what it is for yourself or for another older, an adult, put that to the side. And here's, here's what I'm going to tell you. A normal period is like a vital sign. And so I love that we're going to talk about these four things, but remind me what the first one was. Cycle length, cycle length, cycle length. So in an adolescent, you can have a normal period can go anywhere from three to five, sometimes even six weeks in their first year of having a period. This means that in one month, you can have two periods. And that is actually within the range of normal. I can't tell you how many times I get phone calls about, oh my God, she's having, or my teen is having, 
two periods in one month. And this is, you know, clearly there's something wrong and no, it's not wrong. So it, it, and remember it's a range. So that means that some may even have it every other week and that some may have it even a little bit longer in the beginning of having your period. These things like the first year to these things, this range is absolutely normal. Nina, can you just explain for the lay audience why that's normal? What is it about these early couple of years of menstruating that causes it to be normal to have that variation? So we started off by talking about ovulation and ovulation is this magical thing that requires like all systems go to actually happen. And when a teen starts puberty, it doesn't happen every single month. And it's just normal as the system sort of matures to be able to talk to itself. So ovulation may happen some months and not other months. And so you may have a period where you ovulate and then you've shed your lining. Um, And then you may have others where the lining just sort of builds up and then irregularly just kind of comes out. But it looks like it's a pattern, but it may or may not be. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is factors ready to eat meals. They have been a godsend. We throw our factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box, And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky. And I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. (laughs) And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, Magnesium Breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, Magnesium Breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie Horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash puberty 
and you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at bioptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. Cara, my kids love Magic Spoon cereal. And even though it's cereal, they actually love it as a homework snack. The variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And fruity is the favorite flavor in my house. Now, this pack has zero grams of sugar, between 13 and 14 grams of protein, and between four and five grams of net carbs per serving. It's made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and it's high in protein, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So a great choice, Vanessa. You can go to magicspoon.com slash puberty to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our, you guessed it, promo code puberty at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them. Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash puberty and use the code puberty to save $5. And in terms of, you talked about it as a vital sign, right? So menstruation as a vital sign, and we'll, we'll get back to the other, we did length, duration, frequency, all of that. Can you just share for our audience what you mean by vital sign? Like as a physician, what does that tell you about the the patients, the kids that you're seeing? So menstruation in a teen who has started having their periods, it is a helpful vital sign in that it's a nice marker of just sort of overall health. It marks your nutritional health. It marks your emotional health. And of course, your physical health as well. And this is important and helpful to us as a tool, but it is not the end-all say-all tool. I like to say, again, it's a helpful window into kind of a body's overall health. That's why we call it a vital sign. We also like to call it a vital sign, honestly, because it kind of pushes people to remember to talk about it and ask about it because we are so focused, you know, in medicine about vital signs. And so that's why I like that framing so much. It it centers it. It says, hey, it's important to ask about these things because it could be a clue to when there may be problems or challenges. I just wrote a sample chapter of a book and it's about vaginal discharge. And I quote Cara as talking about how our bodies female bodies or people who have period parts, the vaginal discharge is an elegant part of the body's working, which just like totally cracks me up and how vaginal discharge, like I wish that doctors would ask people not only about their, the mucus in their noses, like what color is it? Is it clear? Is it green? Um, But also the vaginal discharge as a sign of like what's going on in their body's health. So maybe we can start the emission to get vaginal discharge onto the list of standard elegant vaginal discharge elegant vaginal discharge i Um, I hear what people are passionate about and that you're passionate about vaginal discharge is (laughs) well it's like if i mean if if people knew that first of all if kids knew that it was normal right that it's totally normal kids come to me worried they come to me worried about two things vaginal discharge and a single breast butt they are sure that one or the other or both are signs that there is something deeply wrong. So, 
you know, just the more we can talk about it. My son is so tired of the vaginal discharge conversation, but boy, is he going to be in touch with the elegance of that. The system. elegance of vaginal. So that, that is my mission is, um, is normalizing vaginal discharge. All right. What are the three Wait, other we, vital we signs? We got to go back to our I rapid know, fire. I okay. Know. Ready? Okay. Here we go. Okay. Let's get back to rapid fire questions because we're doing really, really well on our rapid fire here. <laughs> okay. Hina, normal duration of a period. Go. All right. So anywhere from two to seven days is normal for a menstruation for a teen. And it can vary from spotting to being a little bit heavier. Typically the first day or two starts are the heavier days. And then it lightens up when things go longer than seven days. And especially if they get closer to 10 days, share it with your pediatrician. We'd like to just check in. It could still be normal, especially when you're early in having your periods, but it's always helpful to let us know. Okay, which gets us to rapid fire question number three, spotting. It's really hard for a lot of younger people to measure what is a spotting day, what is not a spotting day. Give us a couple of spotting facts. Go. Oh, so how much blood is normal is a question I get asked all the time. And um, what we like to say is, you know, the range would be three to six tampons or other product uses a day can be normal, but anywhere from, from spotting to being a little bit heavier with like chunks or blood clots, we say can also be normal. Here's when I worry. I worry when you are soiling or it ends up staining your underwear or your bed sheets. That's when I want to have a conversation to say, Hey, maybe that sounds a little bit heavier than what I would expect or what I think is comfortable or what I would not worry about being so much that maybe you are getting anemic from the blood loss. And you say also staining when they're properly prepared, like when they go to bed at night and they actually wear the pad size they're supposed to wear and not forget that they have their period and bleed all over their bed sheets, right? Because nobody knows anyone in any houses who've done that oh. and knowing themselves Never. <laughs> have, have done it. Talking about. And for those of you who are, you know, <laughs> in middle age and may have given birth or whose menstrual cycle may have changed, Hina is not giving you the information for those of us in our mid forties who may be best friends with the ultra size tampons. She's talking about um, <laughs> tween and teen girls who there may be different expectations. Is that a fair framework to offer Hina that it changes and what is quote unquote normal might be different for the adults listening to this? episode. Absolutely. Absolutely. We really have to look at teen periods separately, how we look to adult periods. And when things go wonky with teen periods, the list of things that we consider are totally different. You know, in older people, we sometimes ha have to think about structural things like um, uterine fibroids or things that worry us more uh, than in younger people. And so we can be really reassuring about younger people, but you want to be um, speaking to your pediatrician about it, who will give you those nuggets that very much center this time of age, this time of you know, life, which is puberty. Uh, and I love what you said about the, you know, about the staining. That's so important because what worries me more is if they're like doubling up on their product use right. and some do, and they think that's, you know, they, they sort of end up thinking it's normal or they use like they're a teen, um, but they'll end up using like a, you know, an adult diaper, even sometimes because they don't want to stain. And so, so it's, it's important to empower them with the knowledge of what these ranges are so that when these things happen, they actually know to come to us and say, Hey, I think, 
I'm not so sure if this is actually supposed to be this heavy or I'm supposed to be having to, you know, wash my sheets. And also you don't want them to be embarrassed about it. They're, you know, and you also don't want them to be afraid that there's something deeply wrong and then not be able to share. So this is how I feel about periods like and normalizing. And that's why I'm so happy we're having this conversation today. You know, one thing we like to do on the podcast is to give people kind of the language and the scripts. If they want to find out what's going on with their kids, if they want to know, are they, I mean, they may know if they're staying in the sheets or they may not know how many pads they're going through or tampons. So if you are responsible for the person buying the menstrual care products in your house, you can enter the conversation with something like, Hey, I got to go to, you know, Dwayne Reed and was going to get you some more stuff for your period. And I'm just wondering like, how many tampons do you go through a day or what, you know, are your pads enough or do you need bigger pads or are you leaking at night? Right. So it becomes like a kind of a practical way into the conversation as opposed to, oh my God, oh my God, you're staining your sheets every single night and I'm totally freaking out and we've got to rush you to the doctor right now. Or, oh my God, oh my God, I found bloody pads all over your bathroom and it's disgusting and I'm so worried about you, right? It's like, we got to stay calm, cool and collected so that our kids don't feel ashamed or worried, even if we ourselves feel ashamed or worried. I really want to get to my last rapid fire I know question. we suck at rapid fire. We're like, we should never do rapid fire again because we're incapable of it. I have to do a sidebar on all of this, this whole sort of pad volume, blood volume conversation because when I first started getting my period, I was so, I have three brothers who often used to sort of wake me up in the morning by jumping on my bed or, you know, the they're brothers and they're rough and tumble. And, and so I, when I had my period in high school, I would create a whole like pad teepee in my underpants. I had, now remember this was a long time ago. So there were no overnight pads. There were no wings, but I had a whole, like, I had a pad in the front. I had a pad down the middle. I had a pad up the back. It looked like a giant capital letter I in my underpants, because that was worth everything to me so that when I was tackled in the morning, there was not a chance that there was a drop of blood visible anywhere. And when I told my daughter this recently, that was the first moment that I think she appreciated the evolution of period products because she too has a brother who also enjoys tackling her and doing all those sort of normal brother, sister things. And this has never been a concern. She has never had to create a capital I in her underpants with three pads to hide any evidence of bleeding. So I just, I'm having a flashback right now because uh, the number of pads consumed in my house in the 1980s was extremely high, but it was because there were like 12 at any given time being used at once. And Vanessa's, we're on Zoom right now and I'm watching Vanessa on mute, like have a little moment, have a little Well, I'm just thinking seizure. about what that feel. I mean, <laughs> I, I am the proud recipient of many people's personal period stories <laughs> as adolescents because we do that in our Dynamo Girl workshops. And often the sort of, the story they carry with them is a first period story or an embarrassing period story. Car and I have shared ours elsewhere. And I think about like the planning and the preparation and the thought that has to go into either not leaking or trying to get a tampon from your backpack to the bathroom in school, or like recently on an airplane, I was going from my seat to the bathroom, you know, like 
the amount of emotional energy we spend on like making sure the world doesn't see that we have or had our periods. And what could we use that energy for if we didn't have to spend it worrying about like people knowing or noticing or any of that? Oh, and so true. It's so true. I just hope, I hope, Hina, that this conversation and that we can like begin debunking that shame and that embarrassment. Car, what were you going to say? I was just going to say that I think if we had a Gen Zer on the phone, on the Zoom right now, they would say, you can breathe because we don't spend as much energy because we talk about all of this much, much more. So I'm going to end our very rapid, rapid fire session with the last question, which is, Hina, what is the total amount of blood volume lost during a period on average? And can you give it to us in tablespoons, please, to make it feel a little accessible? You know, that is a tricky question because I see a range. Some people like tablespoons, some people like ounces, but in ounces, I've seen, you know, anywhere from one to four ounces can be normal. And in tablespoons, oh gosh, help me if you guys are like chefs and convert that into two, two to four, two to two four. To four. Yeah. There you go. Um, and so I think that that is, you know, it's helpful to have that, but I'll be honest, like who the heck is measured unless you're using a product that You're actually measuring actually, with tablespoons. Yeah. Who the heck is doing that? But, but there are <laughs> products right now that, you know, the cups are there and they can measure it for, and some, uh, some of my young, um, young patients love these products that actually have markings and measure. So, so that, you know, like you were saying, so much has changed. We, when we were having our first periods, uh, which I think is a very just important thing to talk about first periods. We certainly had nothing that would measure it. And we certainly may not have been so prepared. Um, and so a teen's first period is usually between the ages of 12 and 13. There's a range. Some of them will get them earlier. Some of them will get them later. Certainly by 15, you want to have had the first period. And if not, you want to ask for help. But I love those stories. I, I, I too get a lot of these stories of first periods. And so I was thinking back to, to what we both have been sharing and, you know, the empowering a teen to be prepared for that first period, both in terms of what's normal and then also like a little period prep pack, like at the tangibles of like, here are some of what's out there on the market that we know, you know, teens are liking. Um, what might you like and touch it and have that both like tactile and also uh, knowledge base of what it is so that they aren't totally taken aback or they aren't taught by places that may not be sharing, you know, accurate information. One of the things that a lot of tweens and teens anticipate going along with their period is pain. They have been taught that pain, whether it's middle schmerz, our new favorite word, or much more likely period cramps are going to slow down or completely stop their sort of regular routine. Can you talk a little bit about pain, you know, sort of what you would consider normal, what you worry about, go anywhere you want with it because, you know, this is an area that you really dive deeply into in your daily work. A hundred percent. So while pain with a period, which we call period cramps or dysmenorrhea is the medical term for it, is normal or can be normal, normal and it's related to ovulation and the things that ovulation kind of produces that um, cause something called prostaglandins that then cause crampiness. That's 
100% a normal thing that happens. But what's not normal is to let a teen be in pain or to just say, eh, it's normal for you to be in pain. All people who have periods deal with this. Teens hear that a lot. Uh, I take care of a lot of teens, of course, who have pain. And so many of them have let it get so severe because they were told, meh, it's normal. Deal with it. Or don't complain. Or why are you complaining? Or everyone gets it. And they hear these things so much. And I really, it actually really hurts me because I want them to live a, a teenage life free from, from having to plan around period pain. And I see so many girls and families actually who create entire systems around period pain, including not having to go to school, um, not being able to go to job, not being able to, you know, getting excuses for gym and for um, notes for tests and things, all these things get created and everyone just still is saying, oh, but it's normal. Um, And so while it's normal to have cramps related to your period on your first or second day, it should be able to be kind of relieved with normal, normal over-the-counter measures like ibuprofen or yoga, stretching, deep breathing. There's so many layers of things you can do. But if these measures are not resulting in adequate pain control such that it's affecting their lives, please, please, please bring it up with your pediatrician. I'm, I'm so very passionate about this because I, um, I take care of way too many teens who have gotten the wrong message that somehow it's okay for them to be in pain and that they just have to grin and bear it. So the yardstick, Hina, is kind of if it's affecting your kind of normal daily life and can't be managed with over-the-counter. I actually, at a certain point, because I was an athlete and I was told to take a leave or Naperson um, because there were a couple days where I couldn't play sports in the way I wanted to because of the cramps. And that was actually incredibly helpful. So your feeling is if it can't be managed with over-the-counter, pain medication and if it's affecting and or if it's really affecting your ability to function in day-to-day normal life, that's a time to go see your doctor, go see your pediatrician and, and, and talk to them about it. Is that a fair framework? Yes, absolutely. I would just add that if you, some girls get really nauseous with these, with the pain and with just the the sensations related to a period and, um, or get really terrible headaches. And so if you're having some of these other extra signs with your period pain, like nausea to the point of vomiting or not being able to eat anything for a day or two, those are also like, I would say points where I would bring it up with your pediatrician sooner because putting it all together, we may be concerned about other things. So if the period pain is happening outside of a period, so not in the time that you're actually bleeding, that could also point to something else. And so we we definitely want to hear about that too. So here's where I do a little plug for a period app because, and, and frankly, tweens and teens are the ones who know much more about period apps than their parents these days. And so they're getting their parents into period apps, but period apps help calendar when the period is starting, when the heavy flow days are, when the spotting days are. And um, a lot of the period apps now have a little functionality built in where you can you can note if you have other symptoms, if you have headache, if you have nausea, um, if you have pain. And it can really help when you go to see your pediatrician or when you go see a gynecologist if a child is having enough discomfort or enough bleeding irregularity that that you get there, having all the data in an app is an incredible thing. So don't be afraid to go find one, download one. 
I just want to recap for people who are listening, who have a kid at home, who they're have either said to them, oh, suck it up. It's not that bad. And now you're rethinking that response. Or maybe you are worried and you're not sure if you should be worried. So some of the guidelines you gave are nausea and or headaches along with period pain outside of the actual bleeding time, pain that can't be managed with sort of normal over-the-counter pain medication, a limitation on regular everyday activities, and bleeding where you're kind of really soaking through your sheets, pajamas, whatever, even with with heavy-duty pads. So if you do have a kid who's dealing with that and you're not sure, Hina is telling us it's a great time to go talk to a pediatrician. Yeah, actually period problems or period questions are one of the number one reasons that we get to interface with teenagers in our offices. And so you are not alone if you book an appointment just to talk about this. But I think the question is out there, do I need to see a gynecologist if I am 10 years old, 12 years old, 14 years old, 16 years old? Can you give us some guidelines clearly if you check boxes on the list that Vanessa walked through, it would be a really helpful thing to start with your pediatrician, but likely go see a gynecologist for the rest of the world. If you're not checking boxes on that list, when should you see a gynecologist for the first time? So I will preface that by doing my own plug for adolescent medicine. So adolescent medicine is a specialty within pediatrics, just like pediatric cardiology or pediatric stomach doctors like GI doctors. And we are actually trained in gynecology, but we come at it from a pediatrics perspective. So as an option, you can look for, you can ask your pediatrician to refer you to an adolescent medicine doctor, or if you're looking for a gynecologist, I would want to make a plug for a gynecologist that's been trained in pediatric and adolescent gynecology. That's actually its own niche with its own training. And if you find a pediatric and adolescent gynecologist trained gynecologist, you are going to be cared for in a way that is very informed when it comes to this age group. Um, And so when should you have your first visit? That's an excellent question. And I think going back to how we started this conversation, Education is empowering. You know, I think that if your pediatrician offers education that is kind of hits all the uh, all the bullets, and you feel uh, that that's that's helpful, then I think it can end there, honestly. But if you have questions, if there are any reasons, any of those outliers that we talked about, you know, we talked about kind of what's a quote unquote normal period, what you know, how we use it as a ment- as a vital sign. So if anything kind of is outside of that range, I think you can absolutely ask your pediatrician to refer you to a gynecologist that they think would be a good fit, and or an adolescent medicine doctor to talk about it further. A lot of girls don't see a gynecologist these days until they're 21 because that's the new age for getting um, a pap smear when it used to be much, much younger, which is a way that we screen for cervical cancer. And a lot of girls see a gynecologist because they, their mom has a gynecologist, um, teens because their parent has a gynecologist and they want to be connected because it's something that is uh, familiar. And so they make that connection at, you know, at young ages, right when they start puberty. So anywhere in that range is, is, is an appropriate time to make a connection. And of course, if you're sexually active, it is important to start getting gynecologic care. And, you know, as the general pediatrician in the group, I will do a big plug for having both 
doctors in your corner, that if you don't have a pediatrician who specializes in adolescents, then you want to keep your relationship with your general pediatrician and you want to add a relationship with a gynecologist who is trained in and very comfortable working with teenagers once you become sexually active. And the other little thing I would add is that just because you go to a gynecologist does not mean you're on your back with your feet and stirrups getting an internal exam. And I think parents, they have this visual of what a gynecologic exam is. And they think I'm not taking my 12 year old or my 14 year old to a doctor who's just going to put the feet up in stirrups and, you know, dive right inside. And that's really not what the visit is about when you're going in your tween or teen years to talk about period questions. That's such an important clarification. And one of the reasons why I think a lot of people truly don't seek out a consultation with uh, a provider who can talk about these things. So thank you for highlighting that. You know, there are reasons why an exam might be indicated, but there are there's so much that we can do. Actually, the bulk of what we've talked about today can actually be done in conversation and with an exam. Without stirrups. Yeah. Oh, yeah. without stirrups. <laughs> without stirrups. Um, yeah. I just want to since we're talking about sort of debunking myths and things that parents may be avoiding, Kina, I just want to talk a little bit about the HPV vaccine and why it's so important. And I will say that when my oldest son went to get his first shot, he, speaking of suck, telling kids to suck it up, he was like, oh, that hurts so much. And I'm like, oh, be quiet, just suck it up. And then he left the room and the pediatrician looked at me. He's like, actually, that one really hurts. And I was like, oh God. (laughs) Um, So for our listeners who may have kids who are entering the age where they are kind of ready for the HPV vaccine or parents aren't sure at what age, Cara and I actually, I think we both have slightly different, um, have gotten our kids the vaccine at different ages. Can you talk a little bit about your preference, Hina, for when kids should get the HPV vaccine and why it's so important? So the HPV vaccine is um, really great, effective, um, magical science. It's it's a vaccine that can prevent cancer. And that's why I say that, you know, and it also prevents genital warts, which is also very important and valid. But I think that this vaccine is just so very important for adolescents. So for both boys and girls, the conversation should happen with your pediatrician around 11 years of age is when we recommend to start the series. It's a two-dose series. And we have found through the studies, through the trials, that the younger they get it, the better protection that they have. So even so, it's not something that I would say, wait and see or think about it later, because it actually works better in these younger ages before. And given that that's just how it works, that's the recommended time frame to kind of have the conversations and get these vaccines in. They're a routine adolescent vaccine at this point. Um, they're safe, they're effective. And I, you know, fully support them. I'm so glad you brought it up because it does have a lot of stigma around it. You know, often people think of it as, oh, it's a license for them to go and have sex because you're giving them something. You're talking about sex at the same time. And, you know, we, they have actually, because so many people had this question and I respect and value any parent question. They actually did studies about it and they actually found out that no, it doesn't, it doesn't make the first, the age that a teen, uh, has their sexual debut or their first sexual encounter is not affected by whether they got this vaccine or not. Can I jump in and round out really fast some of the data? So 
we know that it works better younger, so much so that if you get your first two doses before you're 15, you just need two doses. But if you don't, you get a third dose. So that's a reminder there. But I will play the counter card, which is every kid who's getting an HPV vaccine should also be getting a conversation about what the vaccine protects against, why, how. And that means a conversation about sex and sexual intimacy that sometimes at 11, even though kids are very ready by and large at 11 to talk about sex, they've been inundated with sexual content from every avenue around them, they still may not be anywhere near a place where they are going to be having sexual intimacy. And so a lot of the controversy around HPV came up really over this point, which is sort of, are you getting too far ahead of sexual activity? Are you missing the opportunity to have a really great conversation with a kid about why you're giving a vaccine, which is why a lot of pediatricians will use a window between 11 and 14 to begin the HPV vaccine. If you've got a kid who is starting to be sexually active or who is not going to necessarily follow up and come back to the doctor on a regular basis, that's a child who should be vaccinated sooner. If you've got a child who is really nowhere near sexual activity and is very connected with the practice and the office and is touching base all the time, that is a child for whom you can wait a little bit longer. And that's why you see the flexibility in the ages for HPV. And the only other thing I'll add is when I was in my training, the HPV vaccine was being studied. And it was actually being studied at UCSF where I was doing my training. And I think a, a terrible error that was made is it was being studied in genetically female populations only at first. And it was licensed for females first. And what that did was that sent a very, very, very wrong message that males did not need this vaccine. And it has taken the better part of 20 years for us to rewrite the story that this is a vaccine for everyone. People with penises and vaginas should get the vaccine because people with penises can spread the virus to other people, even if they don't necessarily show any signs. Although, and this may or may not be accurate, but our pediatrician told my son when he was like, oh, why do I need that? He's like, do you want warts on your penis? Yes, Very no. Very effective sentence. Right. Yeah. And he said, no, I don't want words in my penis. And he said, great, I'm going to give you the shot now. And he was like, all right. Um, so that <laughs> that's, that's the way to a, a person with a penis. That's the way to their um, agreeing to a shot. So, you know, we've talked about some areas to worry or to seek help. One thing we haven't talked about, and we're not a scaremongering podcast, but what we are is a place where people can have their questions answered and their worries brought out into the light of day so that they feel empowered and reassured. We know that eating disorders during the pandemic are on the rise, but eating disorders of all types, including severe weight loss. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the impact of weight loss, weight gain on menstruation. And when are the moments where we can say, oh, it's okay. It's just like normal adolescent inconsistency in menstruation. When are the moments where we think, okay, we need to address the stopping of menstruation or other concerns? It is absolutely true that during these challenging and uncertain times, we have seen a rise in eating disorders in teens. I have seen it 
especially in tweens. So in our younger kiddos who sometimes we don't, they don't fit our classic picture in our head of, of a teen with an eating disorder. And in these younger ages, it also means that we see it in different genders. Whereas in the older ages, there is a typically female predominance of this, of eating disorders, but we are seeing it in all ages and all backgrounds and in more numbers during this pandemic. And so what's important to remember when it comes to periods is that it is a sensitive vital sign as we talked about before. So if a teen's weight fluctuates, even five pounds up, five pounds down, that can impact the cycle that might, it might skip. You might have a more spotting or a longer period, but your menstrual cycle can be telling of a change. And so, and then when that change is, you know, a little bit more severe, maybe more than our, you know, five pounds that I'm talking about in either direction, you can impact your period for multiple cycles. And I know we talked about in the very, you know, that it is normal, quote unquote, in the first year or two of having a, a, a of after starting your, your periods for them to fluctuate. If you have started to have your periods and they've been coming month to month, if they then go away for three months, even if you're in your first year of having your period, and this is where, you know, other people may not recognize, but as an eating disorder specialist, I will say, even if it's in their first year of having their periods, if it's been three months, please bring it up because it might be a sign. It might be an indicator. You're, you know, the body might be just giving off a signal that something's afoot. And I a hundred percent am taking care of, of younger tweens who um, have had their, their, their periods be affected and, and they, they have it in their head that it's okay because it's early. However, you look at the whole picture and it give it pushes you uh, to, to look at the whole picture by, by like having that sign. And sometimes we can offer reassurances and say, you know, I think this, there's nothing else to necessarily worry about here. And let's watch it together. Let's use that period tracker and let's watch it together. And other times we might look at the whole picture and say, I am worried about weight loss, about the rapidity of weight loss, about the nutrition level here. And let's dig a little deeper and have a, have a conversation. And for those of you whose brains are going where my brain is going, there is also the flip side, new question circulating, which is how does the COVID vaccine impact periods? And is that doing the opposite, causing heavier or more frequent periods? And lots of people with lots of questions about pubescent kids and the impact of the vaccine. And that could be a whole podcast in and of itself, but I'm just going to say once we have data, people, that we have really no evidence at all that getting vaccinated impacts the hormonal surging and cycling that is puberty. Weight loss, yes, we know that impacts hormonal cycling. That is something that is data-driven and real science. But all of the sort of rumblings about how the vaccine may or may not be impacting periods, the data so far is on an older population. And my understanding, and Hina, tell me if yours is any different, is there is no data. Yes, there's a lot of reporting that periods get heavier with the vaccine, but no, there is no data that there is an interruption in hormonal cycling. We will see what all of the data begins to show as the studies on kids under the age of 12 come to public light. 
Yeah, totally agree. There, there are no studies that are giving us any cause for alarm, but of course I'm hearing about it too. I take care of teenagers and periods for my day job, day in and day out. What I am seeing is that if there is an effect on a menstrual cycle, usually in one or two cycles, that effect that we maybe are attributing to the vaccine. However, again, we're not doing this scientifically. It could be related to anything else like stress or like weight changes or taking, you know, using hormonal birth control and not using it properly or something. There's so many reasons why um, it could be impacted. Or as we talked about, again, just that's what happens in your first year or two of having periods. But I think the most important thing that I'd like to say is historically, we have given adolescents vaccines for, you know, 30, 50 years now, all these different vaccines, and they don't impact whether you're going to start puberty or delay puberty, um, and they don't impact future fertility as a whole. And there's no real biological mechanism where uh, this particular vaccine would be any different in relation to puberty or in relation to fertility. But this is actually a very common question from parents that I field. And I think it comes from a very loving place of, of wanting to protect our kids and protect their future fertility. And I I am very happy to always talk about that and answer those questions. Yeah. And let me just reemphasize that sentence. There is no biological mechanism. So everything that we've talked about over the course of this podcast has been science-based, data-driven, biological, physiological. We understand what is happening in the body, A to B to C to D. And when it comes to this topic of vaccines, there not only do we not really have a lot of data, but we also know that the biological plausibility argument, which is, you know, can vaccines cause this? We have decades of data that suggests, no, no, there's not a path, as they said on Saturday Night Live, you can't get there from here. Remember that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Vanessa's like, wow, we're going to a Boston accent. So, um, Wait, know, that was a last... Boston accent. <laughs> you can't get there from here. <laughs> Car, we got to work on your Boston accent. Oh, I know. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> um, so, Hina, before we wrap, we have one question for you that is really, I think, going to be a preview of a future episode with you if you will have us back, if you will have us have you back because your, your knowledge is so vast and your, your way of explaining is just um, fabulous and so welcome. Can you give us a teaser for our next episode with you? What is endometriosis? Why do people not see it? Why is it so often overlooked and underdiagnosed? Can you give us just a little brief glimpse into that part of your work world? So endometriosis affects me personally as um, someone who developed painful periods in my adolescence and has become a professional interest of mine as well. I teach about it. I write about it. I look out for it. And I look out for it because historically endometriosis is underdiagnosed, even though it presents in teenage years for two out of three women can say, or people can say that they remember the symptoms starting when they were younger than 20, but there are severe delays in diagnosis. Um, it's a very bumpy road for folks who are affected by endometriosis. 
to figure out what they have and an even bumpier road to figure out how to help. Um, but this is a disorder that presents in our adolescent years. So we should look out for it. Um, when you have a painful period that doesn't get satisfied, that isn't controlled by the usual means, we need to investigate further and we need to look for endometriosis. So what is it? It is, you know, it's, it's a, some people, it's been explained in many different ways, but it is basically glands that live inside of your uterus lining that pop up in places it should not be. Pops up in your, you know, your abdomen cavity. It pops up next to your bladder. It pops up near your bowels. So endometriosis, yes, is, is period pain. And it's period pain that can be with your period or without your period, but it can also be things that change your bowels so that you have loose stools. It can make you pee a lot or pee too quickly. So it can kind of wreak havoc in many different ways. I'm so glad you're touched on it and gave me an opportunity to talk about it, hopefully in the future. It's something that I'm very passionate about and, you know, it can, it can affect future fertility. So we talk about things and I'm passionate about talking about things that do and don't affect a teenager's future fertility, because sometimes it's things, it's questions that parents have more than the teen themselves. And some teens really want to know about, you know, anything that you're talking to me about my periods, what does that mean for the future? And, and so being able to answer those questions is so very important. So that is an intro for our next episode with Hina, who's been so generous with her time already as she returns to her busy day caring for adolescents in New York. And Hina, we'd like to end with just a quick, what we call our practical puberty advice, something that parents or adults, people caring for teens can walk away with and put in their back pocket and say, okay, this is something I'm going to put into practice today or this week. And each of us just choose something, kind of our favorite thing that came out of the episode uh, for adults to use in their daily life. So my practical puberty takeaway from today is just the list of things you gave us about when parents or caregivers should worry and seek medical help for kids who are menstruating, things like pain that can't be managed with over-the-counter medication, headaches, nausea, excessive bleeding, period pain outside of their bleeding. So that's my practical takeaway. Hina, do you want to go next or do you want Cara to go? Cara, why don't you go and I'll round us up. (laughs) All right. So other than the internal practical pearl that we are terrible at rapid fire, um, the the show-related practical pearl for me is a reminder that normal can mean so many different things to so many different people. And while there is a broad range of normal, pain is not on that list. And so if your child's life is really being interrupted with pain, don't chalk that up to normal and instead go talk to your pediatrician or ask for a referral to someone like Hina, someone who is an adolescent pediatrician and gynecologist who can help answer some of those questions. Amazing. So I'll round us off with super practical. You've been listening to us talk about period, share period stories or what concerns us about periods. 
talk to your kids about periods, talk to them about your periods, about periods that they might see in media and TV shows. I love it when TV shows highlight periods, but talk to them before they may encounter it themselves so that they know that there's less stigma in your own home about this, this topic that can be sensitive and track those periods. I love how Kara brought up earlier period trackers. You know, I'm not associated with any of these companies, but I love them. I think that they are so very helpful as a tool to inform me, the pediatrician, but also it gets you guys talking about this topic. So a little bit of preparation and and a little bit of tracking and communication about, about periods goes a long way. Tina, thank you so much. We're so grateful for your time and your wisdom and all of the work you do to care for tweens and teens and help keep them safe and help keep adults feel more knowledgeable and empowered as they care for these kids. So thank you for your time. And we are excited that you've already committed to coming back and talking to us more in the future. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts or check out our Instagram at The Puberty Podcast. If you have questions or stories to share, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. And for more puberty info, check out myoomla.com or dynamogirl.com. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.